Hi, and welcome back to the Leading Language and Literature podcast with me, Chris Jordan. In this episode, I am talking with Tanai Naik. Tanai is Secondary School Deputy Principal for Teaching and Learning at United Nations International School of Hanoi. He has recently co-authored an article in the International Educator and is a contributor and advocate for the Association of International Educators and Leaders of Colour. In the show, we discuss a quick introduction to Tanai's career and education to date, as a school, why and how Eunice Hanoi recently decided to gather staff demographic data, what unconscious bias training is and what Tanai took away from it personally, what a Eunice Hanoi interview looks and sounds like, the most common advice that Tanai had for people who wanted to join the school but weren't yet suitable based on their interviews, and finally, advice Tanai would give to teachers or heads of department that want to move into whole school teaching and learning roles in the future. Thank you again to Tanai for sharing some excellent best practice, plenty of management insight and his school's ongoing commitment to DEIJ approaches. If you want to be kept up to date on when educational chat like this happens, then be sure to subscribe to the podcast and or follow me on Twitter at Chris Jordan HK. Okay, tonight, um, if you don't mind, could we have a quick introduction to your career in education to date? Yeah, yeah, absolutely, Chris. Thank you. Uh, it's been about 13 or 14 years since I entered education. I did a short stint in the corporate world prior to, to becoming a teacher, but that's a, a story for another day. So I've been, I started my career in Toronto, uh, working at Branksome Hall, uh, where I taught in the humanities and TOK. Uh, departments and then dabbled also at some point in the English department as well. Uh, my first real foray into any sort of leadership at Branksome was stepping in as both head of TOK and CAS coordinator. Um, and then uh, after about six years at Branksome Hall, I moved on to another school where I took on the role of IB diploma coordinator. Uh, and then that evolved into a role that was an interim director of curriculum or teaching and learning for grades uh, six through 12 and then vice principal of grade 11 and 12, whilst having the DP coordination as part of my portfolio. Um, that was a, a really interesting uh, and, and really valuable experience growing and learning as a leader in that environment. Um, and then when I felt like I was ready to move on, I moved on to my last gig in Toronto was at a school called Havergal College, where I had the opportunity to lead a forum for change, which, which is what the title of the little hub was. We were an experiential learning hub focused on community partnerships, student exchanges, student excursions, and a really great program called uh, Students Act Now, which was student-led um, sort of activist projects. Um, and then the really the core of that work was building a global learning and leading diploma in partnership with my boss and the team around us, um, because uh, we really wanted something that honored and anchored the students' work. Um, that felt uh, that it connected them and let these things that they were doing were very untethered. And we wanted them to have something that was really a little more, more cohesive and programmatic. Uh, and so I did that for two years. It was an amazing job with, you know, we built a lot of things in short time. The second year was also the first year of the pandemic, that last half of the year. Uh, so that so that was pretty tricky. But um, I, I grew up overseas. I grew up internationally as a child of an international educator and lived in Southeast Asia my whole life, uh, whole uh, childhood. And so uh, the call to go back to overseas life has always been there. And when an opportunity at Eunice Hanoi came up, 
Um, despite how much fun I was having in my previous job, I just couldn't quite let go of that of that rope to that mm. was pulling me abroad, especially uh, with young children wanting to give them that experience as well. So uh, an opportunity came up at Eunice Hanoi and and very fortunately worked out. And I've been here since August 2020. Wow, that's quite a, yeah, quite a kind of experience, I suppose. Um, and, and I guess I should say at Eunice Hanoi is that I'm the secondary school deputy principal for teaching and learning. So my portfolio, again, six to 12 uh, in, in that in that domain. Mm, yeah, that's some really cool experience to kind of have collected over the years. Um, uh, so I, I, I suppose I, I became aware of you because I I think I, I I probably originally saw it on Twitter or LinkedIn or one of those things. But I saw you, uh, I saw the, the article in the International Educator. And then from there, I think I found uh, uh the ALOC uh, and ALOC video on on YouTube and and you talk about this in in both of those things but essentially as a school uh, at Unison or why and how did you recently decide to gather staff demographic data um yeah. and what were the most significant findings moving forward for you as a school I think one of the and I, I mentioned this more explicitly in the article co-authored by my uh, colleague, Megan Brazil, who's our elementary principal. Um, there was a lot of talk about we need to be more diverse. We knew that. And, and we knew that just by looking at the landscape of the people around us. And I think the question came up, well, what do you measure against? You, you say you want to be more diverse. And what is your level set for your demographic data? Like, what, mm -hmm. where are we? Are we actually representative in other areas where we don't necessarily believe we are? Are we underrepresented in areas where we think we are? We actually have a very diverse leadership team at UNIS Hanoi. It's actually quite remarkable. Um, we have representation from BIPOC leaders, LGBTQ plus leaders. So probably actually at the top, we're probably the most diverse sort of group uh, within the school. And so everyone talks about, well, UNIS is really diverse. And that's partly true because we do have diverse leaders. But I think when you look at the broader landscape of everyone in the school, we just didn't know where we were at. Uh, and so we stumbled in that process as well. We tried looking at some census data surveys from, I think we looked at one from the Australian government. We looked at one from the Canadian government and we realized they were just way too robust for what our needs were. So we really tried to simplify it and drill it down to the essentials just to help us level set. And, you know, we did things like, you know, passport nationality. So I'm I'm I was born in India. So I lived with an Indian passport uh, as my legal citizenship for like 30 years. But after living in Canada for so long, I became a Canadian citizen. But then I had to give up my Indian passport because India doesn't allow dual citizenship. So even so now there's this sort of like, am I Indian or am I Canadian? Like there were some questions about that identity that were both sort of spiritual and philosophical identity, and then also like legal identity where you fit in. So just to kind of understand who we were as an organization and, and, and what you discover, I think the question is, what did you discover is that people's stories are complex. You know, I learned things about some of our colleagues and I'm like, I had no idea that was part of your, your story. And, and, and I think the one challenge about doing that is that we're, we're a big enough organization, but we're not that big. So there were some, ways we frame questions that we realized, hmm, it's going to be pretty obvious who that person is, right? You know, if we if we're like, if you if you do the tick box, are you a leader? Or you know, are you which division are you administration, faculty, staff, and I click the administration box, 
And they're like, are you, you know, do you identify across, you know, Indian? I click Indian and like, what's your password? Canadian. Well, they're not enough of us. Like you can draw a pretty clear conclusion who that is. Right. So we have to treat it very, very carefully um, and, and how we handle the data and how we stored it and how we and, and really our, our purpose, our why behind it. And I think faculty were, were fully on board. The, the only other thing I'd say, if, if a school, if anyone listening to this is interested in going down this road, our original data, our original question had something that was around um, ability. Uh, uh, you started like neurodiversity, if you, you, if you were working or living with a disability. Yeah. And we ultimately elected to withdraw that question. And that was for a very practical purpose, which is that in Vietnam, you have to do a health check. And we did not want anyone to feel like that medical data, which is very private and lives only within our HR ranks, that that would be somewhere, again, you, you know, when we talk about ways you can drill down, um, we just wanted to be really mindful of that. So we, we ultimately elected to keep that question out. But we also know that part of diversity are diverse thinkers and diverse learners with diverse needs. So there's a bit of a blind spot in our data. And we're OK with that because ultimately we wanted to make sure that our staff felt safe. Uh, taking the survey that's mm. a long answer i hope it covers it no no not at all i think so you obviously mentioned there the the, the board of directors or the management structure and stuff when when you looked at the the staff i'm not sure if you're like able to comment on this or not but was there anything you noticed about like the staff body in terms of representation that you thought needed addressing um i would say like probably most international schools uh are our biggest uh, representation for Vietnamese colleagues happens in the in the staff and the non faculty domain, mm. uh, where that's probably a very common trend uh, in in international schools. So it wasn't surprising, but ultimately something that was a big sort of like, you know, catalyst for our work, which is how do we actually get um, how do we get Vietnamese teachers to feel empowered to apply for these faculty jobs? Yeah. Um, how do we we have a great, incredibly, you know, sort of talented and capable and and just wonderful group of TAs, teaching assistants, who largely tend to be Vietnamese. And when we have elementary school openings, like, are they, do they feel that that's something they can, you know, that they can apply for? And have we done enough as a school to let them know that that opportunity is theirs is is theirs for the taking as well. So we, you know, that was that was probably it wasn't surprising data, but it was certainly something that we, you know, it was just important now to have a better understanding of that. Um, yeah, that that I mean, that's probably like it, it wasn't a shock, but that was one thing that we we and that continues to be going into the second year of our sort of renewed uh, or rethunk. Uh, rethunk is not the right word. I haven't had a coffee yet. But, you know, just our, our, our reframed re recruitment strategy that still remains an area for growth for us. And I've been pretty open about that um, for sure. Yeah, it, it reminds me. So I, I interviewed someone earlier in the year, a journalist in Canada, Natalie Obiko uh, pearson who, Yeah. Yeah, she, yeah, she wrote a great article. Yeah. So, and, 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 and in the interview, she kind of mentioned exactly what you said there, which is to what extent are you having conversations with people from, you know, the country within which you, the school resides and how much do you know about like how they feel about transitioning from the local system into an international system and stuff. And 
Yeah, I think that's a really interesting thing, an important thing to consider. Um, and another part of the the um, process, I think that you you've talked about in 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 um, both the article and and the video that I watched was the unconscious bias training. Um, yeah. What What did you take away from it personally? I've never done something like that. I think I would like to do it, but what What did you take away from it personally? I I think the the probably the biggest takeaway is that we're all prone to bias. Mm-hmm. That like that's it, right? It's like you know we can we can try and unbias ourselves as human beings, but there's a lot of built in internal biases that we hold and that we have, and those can be socially constructed. Those can be just you know driven by experience over time um and so and i think so that was a it wasn't really a a takeaway but it was like it was like a a really harsh reminder that you know none of us are infallible when it comes to having bias bias in our in our approach to to life And, and and that's okay and we we did the bias training with the intention of naming it acknowledging it and working to 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 unbias ourselves and unbias our process. Um, the other big reflective question that we all kind of asked ourselves was, where have there been opportunities where we have benefited from bias? And mm-hmm. international schools are small, little kind of like interconnected networks. And, you know, you can't really go too far without either knowing someone you worked with in a, in, in a previous posting or someone who knows someone that you know and and, and so that that in in and of itself is its own form of a of a bias, right? Like that that who you know um, uh, piece. So I think that idea of where we've benefited from bias in our journeys and where we've you know where bias has worked against us was a really reflective and important process. Um, Dr. Alan Fan, who led us through the training, uh, he just works us through about thirteen just sort of understanding the thirteen most common biases, and and there are links. Um, that I can share later if you, if you, when you post this, that, you know, just kind of going over, it's like a 13, uh, 13 bias overview. Um, and, and yeah, and I think just being able to be aware of them, being able to name them and naming and being uh, able to have strategies to mitigate against that, against them was really the big takeaway. And, and I'm really glad we did it. Um, and, and, uh, and in fact, what I talked about in the video, uh, is later on, uh, we, we were recruiting for a leadership position last year, uh, and that that group had uh, that search committee had members of faculty and staff and even a few students who wouldn't have taken part in the original round of training. So I actually took them through um, that through that training in a very sort of like truncated manner. It was short, it was a little bit more of a here's what you really need to know the the essentials 101. But even then. Uh, it was still quite reflective and eye-opening for those uh, for those um, uh, for those colleagues to experience that. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah that that surely that's like a really important part of the process in order to act on whatever kind of uh, evidence that you found from the the demographic survey. But I think one thing I took away from um, the the, the A Lock video that I watched is you talked all about that. Um, if you have done the bias training and you are working on those kind of biases and and that kind of um, those ingrained kind of ways of working and stuff, one way to get around it is by looking at values alignment, excellent pedagogy and relevant experience. So what, what does a Eunice Hanoi 
interview look like or sound like if you're focusing solely on 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 those things yeah and i, I think maybe i'll just quickly clarify that it's not solely but it, it's probably okay. more emphasized in, in the first round so we have questions around um you know like thing so i guess the best way to think about it is our first round interview is really who you are as an educator like it's it's the broad strokes. Like, what is a positive? What what is your belief about what a positive classroom looks like? How do you support students in their growth and journey and make sure that they're you know that you know that they're learning? And and what are the, some of the strategies for interventions that you have along the way? Um, another really big part of our school philosophy is collaboration across departments. So like, how do you collaborate with others? So questions that you could answer really regardless of which discipline you're applying for. Um, we have in the last two years um, implemented, uh, we take our DEI statement, it, it updates every year because our work updates every year. So we have our DEI statement, we ask uh, potential candidates to reflect on, on that statement and how that impacts their personal and professional practice. Um, so that's kind of been the big change. And I think when we talk, that's probably the most like, this is who we are, this is, these are our mission uh, this is our mission. These are our values. Um, how do you how do you how do you feel about working at a school that puts this out there? You know, it's 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 a two way street, right? When you interview, you're you're interviewing us to see if this is a place you want to be, um, and we want to be open about who we are, and we want to invite you in if you have the same ethos of wanting to to advocate for social justice as a as a core cause or or uh, really being a diverse and inclusive environment. So our, our first round kind of digs into a little bit of that uh, piece so that, again, you can answer really without that specialized, you know, that's not super focused on your specialized area of instruction. Uh, but obviously, we ask you to weave in examples from from that those domains into into the questions that we ask. We ask a little, uh, so we ask a few questions about community, how do you contribute to your, uh, your school community through professional or, um, or personal, uh, personal means. Uh, and then the second round digs into a little bit more of a um, a little bit more of a like laser focus on the the subject area you would be teaching. So, if you move past the first round, usually that first round is is in the secondary school is with a deputy principal. There are three of us, and we each sort of have a portfolio of searches that we're leading. And then, if we move uh, a candidate forward, that usually entails an interview with with our principal of the secondary school and the department head. And again, there you dig into some of those sort of same questions, uh, but also um, some real kind of deeper subject area expertise and knowledge. And then if you make it past that round, then you go into a final round interview with our head of school or another member of the head of school team uh just for for just that final um that final conversation um uh, just to again it's really just sort of coming down to is this a place you want to be sometimes those that last round can be you know it, it can be a little bit more nuts and bolts it might be about you know life in hanoi it might be about you know what professional learning opportunities this that or the other so that's that's kind of how how it goes i know there are so there are some other ways we're looking at doing the interview process i actually I, I work, or not work isn't the right word, I volunteer uh, for a board committee at a school back in Toronto. And one of the one of the sort of the work that I do with that board is, or that board committee, I should say, is, um, is it's called their pluralism committee. So that's kind of like their DEI board committee. 
And there's a really wonderful person working in that school who's actually really stripped down their recruitment process and built it from the ground up and done uh, a, a completely different interview process. Uh, it's 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 really quite fascinating. The challenge, and, and, and we've looked at it here at our school, I've kind of explored it. Is this feasible? Is this sustainable? Um, and the truth of the matter is international schools have a lot more churn. And to go through, a, you, you need to have something that you can do in a timely manner. And that's the best that our current process is the best we can come up with now. I know there are certainly stronger uh, ways to further unbias and uh, your recruitment and even your interview process. Um, and, and our job moving forward is to really think about what does the next evolution of our process look like? Um, so I know there's research out there to support a bunch of different ways of, of engaging with interviews. Um, and, and my hope is that we can adapt some of those to meet the needs of a school that at times can have high turnover as is want to happen with international schools. Yeah, it, it it definitely does. Um, I think that's really. I think that's such a good idea from from the point of view of like starting with values and kind of alignment and things like that. Because sometimes, obviously, in the past, I've had interviews and 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 not got the job, and and either you don't get any feedback despite requesting it, or if you do, you're told something like you didn't have this kind of experience or this, and it's you know. You, that can be quite hard to understand and quite hard to kind of formulate in terms of, you know, is that the real reason? Is it not? And I think if you, if you start with the values thing, I think that's, I think that's such a good way to make sort of make sure that both the people coming in are kind of going to fit right in and, um, you know, contribute to the school environment, but also, you know, I've, I've joined schools in the past or I've, had friends join schools in the past and they felt like the school was a certain way from the way that they present themselves on the website or or this kind of thing. And they realized that once they start the job, it's actually not the case. And I feel like that that is such an important way to, because if I was told, listen, you, you know, you, you haven't got the job because I feel like you're this, well, no, we're this kind of school. And maybe it's, it's, it's just not, it's not going to fit in terms of different types of philosophy and it's not to say that your philosophy is wrong and ours is right i think that's i I would be really kind of like okay yeah i can completely understand what you say in there and i think that's a really honest and, and and straightforward and transparent way to to start that conversation rather than you've got the job and you're told all these things on the first day of your you know school briefing or your school kind of uh integration week um, but anyway, I, th- I think um, so. the The next thing that I was interested to to know was that I think you commented on this um, in 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 the the uh, what's the word I'm looking for the presentation. Uh, I haven't had a coffee either um, that you gave for uh, a lot um, uh, a month or two ago. But you you actually um, for all those people who have a first round interview. You offered quite a considerable amount of your time as feedback to those people who weren't successful in the first round. Um, what was the most yeah. common advice that you had for people who wanted to join but but weren't yet suitable? Yeah, uh, I mean, and, and I yeah, and that really just comes from my own sort of you know I think we've all requested for feedback when we've been unsuccessful, and I just hated the 
idea of, of being sent a cursory email that, you know, we, you know, there were a lot of candidates and, yeah. and th- those things are all true. Those things are all true. I know that now being on the other side of it, but uh, I, so that really just comes from me and I, and, and I know others don't have, uh, don't necessarily are able to do that all the time, but it just, it just comes from me. So I just, uh, a lot of times the feedback is, you know, I, I think the more common one that I gave last year and, and, and it was really around, um, we, we, we really value a conceptual and inquiry based approach. We have uh, we we're rigorous. We have high standards and we have high expectations, but we really want to focus on process in our mission statement. And is is this idea of personal and academic excellence? Uh, uh, and that can sometimes, depending on the nature of the learner, be different. Their their academic excellence might not look like on paper, you know, the the the, the kid who's at the top of the class, but actually, the work they achieve to get that final IB score is really reflective of personal grit, tenacity, and excellence. And we want to honor that. And so I think a lot of times schools, uh, excuse me, candidates might expect, you know, they, they might come in saying, well, you know, exams are really like, I want to get kids seven, seven, sevens, and, and that's the end goal. And, and and that's not, that that is a nice to have, but we want to start from a place of how are you going to support students to grow? Uh, and and move them further along their learning journey. Uh, and are you okay with that for that particular student in that moment of time? They might leave your class not having a seven, and that's okay as long as we've done everything we can as a school to support their growth and development, and we can celebrate their learning at the end regardless of where they end up. So I think sometimes people come in feeling a little bit of a pressure to, uh, you say, like, I get results, I get results, mm-hmm. and, and we want, uh, you know, we want teachers to really think about their their connection to students on the on the whole so like uh, sometimes the feedback might be well you know you didn't seem to uh the way you talked about pastoral care you know we've had some candidates in the past say well that's really the job of the counselor or that's really the job of mm-hmm. the advisory leader and and really what we're trying to say is there are different stakeholders who all have different elements or portfolios in supporting a student. Um, and, and part of your job is to fit within that. It's not completely your only, your, your primary goal, yes, might be to teach subject X and also having a sense of who the learner is as a person, as a human being is really important to us. So I think it's that idea of not just being so results oriented or only really seeing yourself as subject teacher X in a very sort of tunnel vision way. That's that's been a pretty piece of common feedback. Other times it might be a little bit more of an emphasis on content learning as opposed to conceptual learning. Um, you know, teachers who um, respond in such a way in the in the in the questions there's in in the questions in the first round that are pedagogy focused uh, that are a little bit more focused on more of a, um, I, 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 I hesitate to use a traditional, but I think this idea of just, I'm going to teach content at students, as opposed to, I'm going to, you know, flatten the classroom and really bring a more collaborative inquiry and inquiry based conceptual based approach. Uh, and then sometimes it's a thing that we all hate hearing, but it, you know, sometimes you need to hear it to, to, to feel like you can move on, which is sometimes you didn't get the job because there are EY 12 recruitment needs and, uh, the matrix of teaching couples and, and it, it is complex. It's, it's, it's a, it's a pretty all in situation. So I have had to look candidates and say, listen, you were fantastic. Um, and, you know, we had other recruitment needs that were filled by a teaching couple and 
you know, it's it's unfortunate. I've been on the receiving end of that feedback. It's not what you want to hear because partly sometimes you're like, well, if I'm that good, you would have made, you know, if I'm that good, you would have, you know, found a way. And and sometimes it just the, the situation just doesn't allow for that. And and that's a tough one. And and but I'd rather someone hear it and honestly and openly. And there's always a little bit of feedback to give, but sometimes it really just does come down to that. And my hope was that my hope would be that anyone who hears that feedback um uh anyone who hears that feedback actually takes that to heart and understands that yeah they they interviewed great they had a lot of wonderful things to say um the irony of me saying this with a long-winded answer sometimes <laughs> the the succinctness of answers and the way in pitch people can meander around too is feedback that i've given and clearly anyone listening to this podcast is like really you're giving that feedback because i feel like i've been answering this question for a long time no, but it's important 100%. to me it re- it is important to me. So yeah, I know. I think that was a pretty succinct answer. Uh, this is, I was about to say, partly selfish. It's probably entirely selfish question because I do think, uh, you know, thinking about like my own career in education and stuff, I think I would quite like to maybe in ten years' time be something to do with, you know, uh, teaching and learning. So whether that means like vice principal teaching and learning or, or you know, yeah. whatever the particular nomenclature is of of the respective schools but what you've had like a really interesting sort of set of experience coming to the job that you're into now but what advice would you give to teachers or heads of department that want to move into whole school teaching and learning roles in the future yeah uh sometimes i feel ill-equipped to be the person dispensing any sort of uh meaningful advice but i appreciate you asking um you know, Chris, I think it, it, it sounds so cliche to say it, but I, I would I would say go with your why. Go with go with like why do you want to do this? Do you have something that you really feel like you can contribute to to the current landscape of education? Uh and I in my mind there are ideas that I have, there are ways, <clears throat> there are approaches that I'm thinking about, there are programs that I'd like to see school have. So <clears throat> in my mind, yeah, I think I'd like to see, I'd like to put my stamp on a school in, in, in supporting that work. And I guess maybe one of the ways I might answer this question is to think about a, a story, if I can, if you'll indulge me, is that um, I, I at some point in my career, and I won't, I won't specify specifically when, um, an opportunity to move into a, a, a reasonably significant leadership role presented itself. Um, and without really, I, I kind of just took it. I was like, sure, let's do this. Mm. And upon reflection of that, it was great learning for me. Um, I wasn't ready to take that on. Um, and that was okay. I didn't necessarily fail at the position. I think I did quite well considering everything, but it was also kind of to the detriment of, you know, what I felt I was originally there to do at that particular role in that particular organization. And so my big learning away from that was that there will be times that opportunities will come your way. And, and, you know, when, when in this case it happened to me, I was fairly young, I was fairly early in my career and the idea of having a title or a, a role of reasonably significant responsibility 
seemed, you know, uh, there's not much glamour in education, but it seemed glamorous at the time. Uh, and and I and I took it and my reflection on, on taking it was that I just really wasn't ready. So I think part of it is like knowing internally within yourself when you feel ready for to take that on. And that could be that readiness could be through a number of different lenses. It could be being professionally ready. It could be being personally ready. At the time, I had two really young kids um, and and. Um, you know, there's a lot of personal sacrifice in terms of time away from them um, uh, to take on some of those roles. Um, so that that would be the big piece. So I think, you know, really kind of establishing what what do you what do you have to offer? What what is your vision? Uh, if you're talking about teaching and learning. The other thing that I've actually found in my career is I've tried to dabble in as much of a school's sort of in as much of school life as possible. Um, so, you know, I've done some cast coordination, I've done some curriculum leadership, I've been a vice principal that sort of dealt with pastoral, student care, discipline, uh, I've dealt with experiential learning. Um, and and I think what I've also demonstrated, uh, one of my favorite books is Range by David Epstein. Uh, and David Epstein talks about really kind of like why generalists succeed, um, right? It's a, And he's got a great TED talk, how falling behind can help you get forward. Uh, and he uses some really great examples of of what that might look like. And and while I think I have expertise, while I think my opinion and my thought has value in in certain in in, in my school and the schools that I've worked in, I see myself as sort of a little bit of a generalist. I like dabbling in many different parts of a school's experience, and then I like trying to bring that all together. So even the work that I'm doing on teaching and learning right now um, is very much connected to the work I did with my experiential learning background and. You know, that's enveloped by my personal interest in DEIJ work, which has really been, you know, for many, many years. Um, the, the work I led in my previous school with the experiential learning was a, was a forum for change. We were deeply rooted in social justice work. And this is pre-2020. So, mm -hmm. I, you know, that that idea of all of this work now coming together. So um, that would be the advice I would give uh, is really focus on your why. Uh, having a clear understanding of your personal and professional readiness to take it on, uh, and then, um, and then, and then, once you feel like you've hit those two pieces and you're ready to do it, then jump in with both feet. And there's always going to be that little caveat in any job description: duties as assigned. Take that on because it really is an opportunity to learn about how your organization works. So this recruitment stuff, this is a lot of HR work. And, and I didn't think I'd be as fascinated in it as I have been. Uh, and I'm now pursuing a doctorate that's a focus on recruitment, retention, and succession planning. So you just don't know where you're going to find an area within a, an organization that really like, you know, just as a light bulb moment for you. So be open, but be have an awareness of who you are when you're ready to take that leap. Mm, that yeah that's an that's a great answer thank you i think it's so funny like a lot of what you said there like resonates with the conversation i had just yesterday afternoon with a former colleague about why people in senior leadership go into senior leadership and i i, I think i said literally i was like i wonder how many people as you just mentioned tonight how many people find themselves there because they think they want to do it and realize wow you know this was this was this was too much of a big step too soon and then what do you do in that situation and stuff so it was really interesting to hear you say that yeah. um yeah i suppose the last thing for me to that remains for me to say is just thank you very much for giving up your time today and um it's um it's it's the the article 
that I've mentioned a few times now and 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 the, the ALOC stuff. And I think it, it opened my um, uh, understanding to, I mean, that whole process, but also a load of other kind of like educators or trainers out there who have since kind of discovered and started to read about. So Dr. Jennifer Beckwith and um, uh, Darnell Fine and, and people like that who are really interesting, I'd never heard of before. So, um, yeah, I think thank you very much for your time today. And thank you very much for all the work that you've done in the past uh, the past few weeks, months and years. Yeah, I think the only thing I'd say in closing is, Chris, thank you for inviting me. And, and what, what makes me the most proud of this work is you could have invited any member of our leadership team uh, and they could have answered, you know, many parts of this question. You could have interchanged us or many, many of these questions, you could have interchanged many members of our leadership team. Uh, and, and I think that speaks to our shared and collective belief in the work. Uh, so while you're interviewing me and I've given some personal reflections and personal answers, I also uh, I also really think that we were very fortunate that when we brought this work, my, my fellow deputy principal, uh, Natasha, when we made this recommendation to our leadership team, uh, you know, um, almost 14 months back to take on this training to emphasize this work, uh, we were met with no resistance and, and the all everyone was all in and, and it made for a really enjoyable experience uh, as professional learning for all of us to do together. And and we stand by and are very proud of that work. So, in fact, as I'm recording this podcast, I have t- we have two other members of our leadership team presenting at AEIE on the same topic. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it just goes to show that we we really took this on as a team and, and we ride as a team on this one. So I, I, I just wanted to say that in, in my closing remarks, too. That's great. OK, thank you. Yeah. Thank you again very much tonight. Yeah. Thank you.